Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. We're the video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Well, we've made it through season three and the Counterpoint series where Dr. Tim and I debated various ideas. I had a lot of fun. I hope it was very helpful to all of you. Um, Tonight, Dr. Tim is not able to join us, but fear not, I've brought back my favorite guest so far, and I think a fan favorite as well, Dr. Christian Wilder from Grand Canyon Theological Seminary. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Thank you for having me back. Of course. I, Christian, you are, and I've said this offline, I've said this in person to you, but you're just one of those people that I absolutely love just talking God's word with. Because um, it's always fun, it's always exciting, uh, and it strikes that right balance of exciting my intellectual curiosity, but also my passion for the word. And you always bring a good amount of humor, so it's always a good time. So uh, glad to have you back. And I would also add to that, there's always a level of respect. And too often, too many conversations, that's not true anymore. So I I agree. I, I enjoy our conversations because of that. Well, thanks. And yeah, so listeners, we just went through season three where Tim and I were disagreeing. But one of the things I appreciate about that was that those debates were done with respect. Um, and Christian's another one of those guys that I love to talk about God's word and have respectful conversations, even disagreements with. Absolutely. Uh, and our encouragement is we really hope you find those people in your life because, uh, yeah, I'll just say uh, this week on the internet and uh, some comments and feedback have not been that <laughs> at all times. And that's fine. We could disagree, but at least here, we're going to try to keep it respectful and focused on the topics at hand. Anyway, so tonight, uh, as we're getting ready for Thanksgiving, we have a double portion of fun ready for you. We're going to start by talking about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and then kick it over a little bit to apocalyptic literature. So Christian, let's get started. Last time you were here, we were talking about the Second Temple period, uh, and that was really helpful talking about just what that period is, some of the big books and ideas. We gave our listeners uh, the idea of reversing a circumcision, which is still a Google search for the brave. And if you want nightmares, um, hopefully we're not going anywhere near that tonight. Instead, we're going to touch on the Old Testament connection point to those topics. I have to ask, (laughs) did, did you Google it after? Uh, I'm going to plead the fifth because we are live and being recorded, sir. <laughs> I apologize. But, um, I, I, I have a cold. And so. <laughs> that, that's all right. No oh. worries. Anyway. So tonight, the, tonight though, we're, we're, we're bringing it back to the Old Testament touch point that leads us to the second temple, which is yep. Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of our last historical books aside from Esther if we take that as a historical book. Um, let's just set the scene. And, and, yeah, Chris is laughing because that's a minefield we're not going into. Um, let's start by talking about where we are in history and, and the scope of the Old Testament. So Ezra and Nehemiah, we start with the people of God, uh, just the kingdom of Judah, right, in captivity. Walk us in a little bit. What's going on in their world and when in time are we as these books start? Okay, so... 540, 539, 538 BCE is when we're talking. Okay. And you have to realize that just a few years before this, Babylon is still the power in, in the entire region. Okay. And then this little entity arises 
to the what east southeast and mm-hmm. um his name is cyrus and all of a sudden he starts taking battle after battle and he moves north and he's winning more battles and he flows west and he takes the entire asian plain he goes over he takes the uh was it the uh, ionic league wipes them mm-hmm. out and it's just it's amazing i mean you, you, the the only time you see something move faster than this is alexander the great when he comes later on so yeah they come back around they come south and c- come into babylon and there is debate about Alexander. I'm sorry about um, Cyrus's enter, entry into Babylon. The way he promotes it is that uh, he came in as a liberator, and mm-hmm. they were welcoming him. They were they were thankful that he came in and liberated them from their king because their king moved from the cult of the city. And started worshiping, I believe it was the sun god. Or I'm sorry, the moon god, I believe. I, I would have to go back and, and check that out. And so Cyrus positioned himself as a liberator. Um, and all of history says that he came in and they, they, they welcomed him with open arms. Now, mm-hmm. that's because Cyrus probably had a fantastic PR guy. What most likely happened was he infiltrated people in. And they got the ball rolling either with kind of leading the crowd or maybe got some of the some of the the um, religious leaders or group something and kind of pushed it forward. Nevertheless, um, Babylon falls. Persia takes over. That's 539 BCE. And then mm-hmm. Cyrus puts out what we know as the Cyrus Cylinder. But it is this this declaration sending all of the all of the um, nations that Babylon brought into into Babylon Central, sending them back home, and we step into that in Ezra chapter one. It's not the same as what's on the Cyrus cylinder. But the concept is the same. Right. So that's a real generalized picture. Egypt is still a power down south. Um, the the, the um, Greek states, they're still city-states. Uh, they're not united yet. Uh, they won't unite until Alexander the Great. And three, what, they unite, what, 340, something like that? 350, 340? Around, uh, it's around 200 years after Cyrus. So yeah, we still have plenty yeah. of time before that becomes and, an issue And for they them. actually uh, unite under... Alexander's father. So, right. But yeah, so that's kind of what's going on in the big picture. Okay. And I like how you brought up Cyrus seems to be this great liberator, but maybe he had a good PR guy. Um, the, the late comedian Norm MacDonald uh, always had a funny line. And he's like, isn't it funny how everyone in history is always the good guys winning and always the really nice people that get ahead? Yeah. Um, right. Just pointing out that we do need to be critical readers, and I don't mean skeptical readers, but we need to be aware, right? People are people and human nature is human nature. Uh, Those that win are going to try to do what they can to make themselves uh, look good, right? And the Cyrus Cylinder, which you refer to, it's one of our important documents written in Akkadian. And it starts off by portraying the old Babylonian king, 
Nabonidus, I believe, correct? Um, As a sinful and wicked king and right, Cyrus is coming in as this liberator. Uh, And so although the wording as Ezra starts is slightly different, it's the same idea. We're going to put you all, these captive people that Babylon took, back in your lands. Um, From a empire standpoint, that's always struck me as a very smart idea. Uh, Uh When when Babylon and before then the Assyrians would come in and they would either disperse, destroy, or relocate people. Um, you destroy your tax base, you destroy the utility of the land, uh, and that's not a good way to maintain an empire. Uh, the Persians, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, the Persians have the, uh, of those three, the Assyrian, because they kind of go back to back to back, the Assyrians yeah. into the Babylonians into the Persians. The Persians have the longest and most powerful run until they come up against the Peloponnesian League and then ultimately against Rome. Um, but I think, well, right, they, they have the, mo- the most lasting of those three empires, right? They do, but they they're, uh, they lost their empire uh, to um, to uh, Alexander the Great. So, but that right, was yeah. good, it's their successor state that fights Rome. Yeah, but um, uh, one thing that that should be noted is that uh, you're familiar with um, with um, Dan Block, right? Mm-hmm. And in his his book, um, Gods of the Nations. Mm-hmm. So what he says in Gods of the Nations is that uh, um, you have like a triangle where you have the God, the land, and the persons. And when you, those three things are together, you have a people. And so by removing right. the people from the land, like ba- Babylonians did and the Assyrians did, you break that. And so you're actually breaking the back of the people. They no longer have a meta narrative that connects them to their God and, and to their mm-hmm. history. So in some ways that makes sense. But Cyrus, by sending them back to their lands, is reconnecting that and reconnecting them to their God, which allows him to claim himself as a liberator, which is brilliant. Sure. Yeah, it, it, especially from a like a modern strategic standpoint, you're going to go, wow, that's a well, genius move. Because you're instantly going to get goodwill even as you then begin assimilating them back, right, through kind of cultural, not appropriation, but alteration to try to make sure that they still feel connected uh, to your power base. Um, It's interesting, if you don't mind, let's segue here just real quickly, because the idea of land, God, and people, or, or land, God, and persons is what makes a people, I think is important. We haven't really talked about that on the podcast, but would you say that that is something that would be operative in the Israelite mindset? And that's why the oh, exodus is devastating for them. Absolutely. Um, matter of fact, you even have the the buildup as um, they're preparing to be exiled. Mm-hmm. You see God starting to provide um, condemnations of other nations. And the question is, why is that? You know, it, before it was, well, yeah, he's condemning these nations because Israel is going to go in and take them. Now Israel is not going to take them, and there's still a condemnation. Why? Because it is, it is God teaching the Israelites that he's not just the God of the land of Israel. Mm. And it's funny because before the, the, um, the um, exile, it's the God, of, the God of Israel. After the exile, right. he's referred to mainly as like the God of the heavens. Mm-hmm. Because there's this broadening, this understanding that he is truly the God of the world. 
Now, a lot of evangelicals, and I'll probably get both of us in trouble here, but a lot of evangelicals like to believe that um, the entire Old Testament is monotheistic. I would disagree. Mm-hmm. I would say that the entire Old, Old Testament is henotheistic. There are, they believe there were many gods out there, but there was only one god they were to worship, and that was Yahweh. And I would say that it is in the captivity that we see the true final move from henotheism to monotheism. Now, again, recognize there's a lot of good evangelicals that would disagree with me on that. But I do think that's what we see in the, um, the captivity. That's one of the theological shifts we see. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll get in trouble right alongside you, Christian. I tend to agree as well. Um, I've published an article, not in an official blog, but on uh, GCU's uh, Theology Commons, uh, arguing that the Shema, Hero is your the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, is not about monotheism. It's about monolatry. It's about worship of one God, mm-hmm. uh, irrespective Absolutely. of the existence of other gods. Um, and, and in part, listeners, if you're like, wait, what are they saying? In part, we need to recognize there's no Israelite word for a spiritual being that is not a divine being. Well, even that's maybe problematic. But uh, realize when they talk about angels or the spiritual realm, they use the term Elohim, gods. Yep. Uh, and so what you have to then parse out is how did they view the spiritual realm? Did they view that there's only a single creator God? I think that's undeniable. Um, but you have a spiritual realm that's very operative in their mind. Um yep. Going back to that that breaking of the the three elements, uh, I think we see that in Hosea, don't we? When you start saying they are uh, low rami, they are not my people. Yep. Uh, you, you see this idea of a break, um, and then that's going to bring us nicely into Ezra and Nehemiah because we are going to return to the land. And Christian, as you just said, that doesn't necessarily mean we return to that nice triumvirate of God and the land and persons. We now become a people again because there becomes some problems. So as we start in, in the Ezra story, we get the decree, return to your land. And we have a couple different migrations back. Um, but what are some of the difficulties that the people face once they are back in the land? Well, let's get into more trouble. There is, yes. <laughs> there is something else that's kind of just under the, under the currents that we need to talk about. And that's this. When Persia goes into a new nation, okay, they do this, um, they, they go to the, the head or the, the top cultic figures. Mm-hmm. And they say, here's what we will do. <clears throat> we will restore you to your previous position. Okay. If you give me the top position I can hold within your cult. And so... And, and by cult, we mean in uh, a religious system in the religious, We use cult right. in Old Testament studies. Go ahead. Right. And so, for instance, he comes, into, he comes into Babylon, and he becomes king in the, in the festival. Uh, he actually goes, shakes the hand of the god, uh, which mm. makes him king, and puts him in the highest highest position in the cult. When they go into Egypt, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
one of the the Egyptian generals, who's also a priest, um, he uh, turns on Egypt, if you will, and uh, he actually goes to Cambyses the second, who is the son of of um, um, Cyrus the Great, because it's Cambyses who's who's leading this, and. Basically, what happens is he says, I will make you Pharaoh. And Cambyses then re restores his temple and one, one, one or two temples that are for him and none of the other ones. And, mm -hmm. of course, being, being get made a Pharaoh puts him at the highest cultic place in their land. Now, right. that being said, you have an Ezra 1. Go back, go to your land, restore the temple, restore the city, do all these things. But how many Christians look up Isaiah 45.1, where mm -hmm. Isaiah declares God saying Cyrus the Great is his Mashiach, his anointed one, his Messiah. Mm -hmm. Now, before, you know, too many things happen there, understand that Messiah simply means one who is anointed, anointed with oil. So every high priest, every legitimate king was a Mashiach. They were an right. anointed one. But here it starts, it started to take on a little bit more connotation. That here's an anointed one, anointed into the office of king. Now, in the end, that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But mm -hmm. we can't skip the idea that you have a non-Davidic, non-Hebraic man being called God's anointed king. And it's the same pattern you see with Egypt, same pattern you see with Babylon. Now, why is that? You know, is it just the fact that we're just seeing political mechanisms and uh, or machinations and that the Bible is just just a document like anything else? No, the Bible is recording what happened in history. Mm. And this is how it came about. But it doesn't mean God's hand wasn't on it. Right. Do you think, uh, especially that I, I like that you brought in the Isaiah reference, because that is right. An interesting element. We've talked in the past uh, on this podcast of the idea of a Messiah being a Davidic king. Right. So Solomon is is evaluated as is he possibly mm -hmm. the. Davidic heir? Is he the Messiah that we're looking for in that sense? Um, and then that kind of goes through the Davidic kings. But that's part of the shock, right? Is that Cyrus does not fit the pattern, and yet he is the one that is called that uh, yep. by Isaiah, or rather by God through Isaiah to his people. Right? So that that would have been a shock to the system. Uh, and maybe is going to get at, too, part of the problem that we deal with in Ezra and Nehemiah, or, or part of the problem in theology that we're we're wrestling with, right? As we get to the Old Testament, how do the people of Israel understand their God and his control and work uh, in the world? Uh, and there's maybe some some tension there. Uh, but even listeners, if you read along in Ezra, right? At the beginning of Ezra, uh, Cyrus is making a very, makes a very bold claim, right? The God of all heavens has given me, or the God of heaven uh, has given me authority. Um, there, there, there's some... How do you want to put it, Christian? There's some subtle uh, insinuation of a legitimate authority within their system. Um, 
because we've already talked about that's going to be a preferred term for Yahweh going into this yeah, time. I would period. say that there, it is very much, he is the king that God has given us. And nowhere mm -hmm. in the Old Testament or, or the, the First Testament is um, Persia spoken of negatively. Nowhere. Babylon, hmm. horrific. If you accept, oh, horrible, yeah, yeah. If you accept the prophecies of of the uh, Greek Empire, horrific. In, in some ways, you know, Assyria, sure, yeah, Egypt. There's nothing good in Egypt. You know, Egypt is like the modern day New Jersey. Just nothing good. <laughs> and I and I said, I said, Hi, New Jersey. How are you doing? I said that for purpose because my wife is upstairs. She's probably hearing this, and she is from New Jersey. So, so, anyways, I'm just kind of looking oh, up because I, I'm paying attention, make sure my life isn't, you know. But anyway, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It, Egypt is horrible, but there's nothing bad said about Persia. So, if I was putting on a skeptic's hat. I would say, does that indicate then that the Old Testament was written under compulsion or rather, because a lot of theories on book formation is that it happens in this Persian period. So is this lack of critique of Persia evidence that the writers of the Old Testament, editors, redactors, whatever term you prefer, were not free to criticize Persia? Or as I think you were leaning toward, is there a theological maybe reason as we look at these empires that Persia is spared some of the critiques that the traditional enemies like Babylon and Egypt uh, receive from the biblical writers. Well, this actually gets into an even deeper conversation of to what level does Persia control the daily life of its people, of, of it, its other nations, um, the nations that it, it has within its authority. And there is a great deal of debate on that. Uh, hmm. I would argue that they didn't pay a lot of attention to local control. Um, and it, it's because of the way that they integrated the, the king as the highest part of the cult. So you can't really do any religious things without supporting your king. Sure. And so... He allows them to do that. He kind of backs off and takes his hands away. Governors, the governors are Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so it's not until you get to, um, if you would, maybe regional or, or empire level, you know, levels that you actually see the true Persian strength and, and focus on that. Um, by the way, another okay. element of that where I was talking about um, you know, going into an empire and saying, hey, I'll be, you know, give me the highest position, blah, blah, blah. Another part of that was that there had to be a strategic person or place or a, a strategic reason for it. And mm, okay. they were planning on going, taking Egypt. And if you look at a map, unless you want to load up in boats, there's only one way to get to Egypt. Yep. It's and through you better Israel. have that, that little straight between the sea and the mountains in control. Mm -hmm. You do that by have, by sending the people back there and getting back in touch with their God to control that land. But anyways, I'm backtracking now. 
No, that's it's good though, right? Um, we've seen multiple battles in Israel uh, during yeah. both the Assyrian period and the Babylonian period because this has always yeah. been a goal of the Mesopotamian empires is to conquer Egypt. Yeah. Um, Israel listeners, right, historically always had this kind of untenable and unenviable position of sitting between two ancient and historic superpowers, uh, Egypt and yeah. its various dynasties, and then whatever basically came out of Sumer. Uh, the Sumerians, yeah. the Assyrians, or the yeah, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, so coming yeah. back uh, then to Ezra, so oh, we've got oh. Cyrus. Oh, sorry, no, let's, yeah. let's stay there. Go for it. No, so 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 you asked me about um, <clears throat> critical thinking dealing with Persia. Mm-hmm. The other issue going on here is you have this nation who's come in and said, we're going to liberate you. We're going to send you home. We're going to give you money. We're going to give you everything you need to go back and to fix it up. Now go do it. I would think that just the natural response to that is to write in a way that they are uplifted and the people who caused this problem that they defeated are the enemy. Hmm. So take everything else out, just human nature. That is the natural response. Um, Because they are, in some ways, they are the savior, you know? And then add to that the fact that um, Persia does have a lot of influence and they do restore. They are, they do seem to be um, God's hand and bring about, bring back some of the things of Israel, or I should say of, of Judah or Judea. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, let me state at this point in time, because you know, we have words like Hebrew and, and Israelite and Jew and whatever else. Before the Babylonian captivity, you have the northern and southern kingdom. They are the sons of Abraham. Um, they are Hebrews. Okay. Mm-hmm. After that after the captivity, they're Jews. And so historically, right. when you're talking about this pe- this group of people, you, after captivity, we call them Jews, short for, for from Judah. And before mm-hmm. that, it's the you know Southern Kingdom, Judeans, whatever else. So that's an important aside, listeners. By the way, because um, when you talk about a Jewish person coming into modernity. We are talking about descendants of Judah. The Assyrians did their job well with the 10 northern tribes, those Israelite tribes. They are dispersed. um, I'm going to say in totality, like we cannot trace anyone back to that. The best we get are a group of, shall we say, uh, half-bloods that we often call the Samaritans, that they are half Northern Israelite. Um, but yeah, so Jew stands for Judah. Uh, Christians gain in trouble from his wife. That's fantastic. No, I'm <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very tempted. <laughs> I thought you were. <laughs> I'm very tempted to grab a book up there and say, yeah, but what about this? Which is the Mormon Bible. But we won't go there. And I am just kidding. Not touching that one. <laughs> no. Um, for, those, for those who are unaware, they believe that the lost 10 tribes somehow came to North America. And that's, yeah. I was referencing that, but I am just joking. Hello, Internet. How are you doing? Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, I, so you bring up a good point. As a, 
<laughs> Welcome for Dr. Christian's second and last appearance on In With You. Um, no, so this this is an interesting point, right? So Persia does seem to, both from Isaiah and how they're they're operative here, they're acting as God's agent restoring Israel oh, to the land. Um, and so maybe from that perspective, it makes sense that they are given a more positive treatment. Uh, they aren't the ones that carried off Israel into captivity. Uh, they're the ones that punished those who carried them off into captivity. Um, so that, that does kind of make sense. Uh, as we then look at the land, uh, the people come back in and, and we start rebuilding a few things, right? We rebuild the temple. We rebuild the wall. One of my favorite memes I've shared with you, Christian, is uh, uh, Nehemiah for governor. We're going to build a wall and make Persia pay for it. Uh, it cracks me up. No further political comments meant by that, aside from I find it hilarious. Um, but so we get back in the land, and, and that is what we start doing. We build the temple. And this is the start of why we call it the second temple period, right? Because the Solomonic temple is that first temple. Yep. Now we have this new temple. Um, Which is actually... But I, I don't, Do I want to even throw this out there? Oh, why not? This is actually the third it. temple. So, all right. Well, and then you have to add in Herod's ascent, right? So, what qualifies yeah, as a it, new starting of a temple versus an expansion of what yeah. already existed? Let me kind of share what I what, what I was saying. Um, yeah, go for it. Way, way down in, in Egypt, um, down in the Nile on Elephantine Island, out of the blue, mm -hmm. this Jewish temple shows up. Okay, and it's there. Um, some people think that maybe it came about. Um, from the time that that uh, um, um, Jeremiah and those went down there, others say no, it might be some other time. We don't know, but just this temple shows up, and in this period of time in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're aware of the temple because we have letters that we found in the in the temple on Elephantine from the temple in Jerusalem back and forth, um, and they're cordial letters. Hey, brother, how you doing? You know, Please uh, let us know when the, you know the official time for the start of of um, Passover is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then we have another letter that comes back and forth um, when the the priest of priests of Num 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 um, destroy the temple, possibly because they sacrificed bulls in the Jewish temple, and. Yep. Uh, and so they write a letter trying to get the governor to support their rebuilding of the temple, which doesn't happen, which is interesting. Uh, hmm. That could you could be seeing the fight between the two sides with an Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah there. Um, yep. And then later on, as I shared last time I was here, you have a temple in Leontopolis that shows up with a nice four. You also mm -hmm. have a temple that gets built in um, in Samaria. So you have all these yep. Jewish temples popping up. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. But when we say second temple period, we mean the actual temple that was built on uh, Mount, Mount Zion. So Right, on the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem. Um, yes. Yeah, and so by the way, the study of those other temples, especially the Egyptian one, is fascinating because just as a breadcrumb out there, right, there's the connection of what happened to the Ark. Uh, and there are some theories that then push it down into Egypt and then into Ethiopia through that route. Um, 
which that's a rabbit tra- <laughs> that's a rabbit trail. Uh, we'll try to stay with just Ezra Nehemiah for now. Um, but whether it's Ezra and Nehemiah's temple or these other ones, uh, they lack something, right? We are never told that the glory of the Lord inhabits the temple like we do with Solomon's temple. Um, what does that do theologically? As we're going through the book, we rebuild the temple. Of course, we see that the people weep, those that were alive and knew the original one. Uh, this is a shadow of its former self. Um, and then we don't hear about the glory of God coming on the temple. What does that do for us both as readers, but then what would have done that to them as the people in that time? Well, I think for them, they see themselves as renewing the covenant. Hmm. And if you read through uh, Joshua, especially through Joshua, there are several covenant renewals that happen. They right. don't see yeah, like the Gilgal is a big one, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and then if you go deeper into Second Temple theology, um, for instance, um, um, Jubilees sets up all of the covenants mm-hmm. as renewals of the covenant of Noah. Right. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all of those are actually renewal covenants or renewals of the Noahic covenant. So for them, I think they would just see it as a covenant renewal. And so we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to, going to renew, renew the covenant. And we're God's people again. And here we go. The problem is there was this underlying belief that they hadn't yet really returned from Babylon. That mm-hmm. they, they weren't fully restored. Um, and you see this in different places. So you have, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, the forced divorces. Okay. Well, part of what's going mm-hmm. on is the Gola, the ones who were in captivity and returned, okay, Hagola, they thought they were the ones who were purified by going through captivity. And they should not let themselves be tainted by those who are still tainted by sin, those who did not go into captivity. And so you have this, this split between the what's called the Amharets, the people of the land, which a lot of people right. used to identify with just the Samaritans or whoever else. But that's not all true. It, 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 the people who were taken off into captivity, they were the ones that could actually um, contribute to society, uh, contribute right. to the intellectual element, could contribute by skills to society. The ones who just had, you know, could just farm land or do labor, they were left behind. Um, Blankensop, Blankensop writes a book uh, called uh, um, was Judaism the First Phase where he talks about the myth of the empty land. That mm. There's a myth that the land was empty when they were gone and they just came back and filled it. They didn't. They came back and there, was, there were already Jews there but they were right. not purified. And so when you start to see that, that debate about who gets to help build the temple, it's not just the Samaritans up there, it's also the Amharets. The, right, the, the people left behind. Yeah, it's not just the, the, the Samaritans, it's intermarriage with Amharets. And so this thing of, you know, one, are we purified enough? Well, hmm. that did purify some, but there was many who said we were not fully outside of, you know, we, ha- we haven't fully been restored yet. And so they're looking for a future restoration. 
So, but there's just a ton of stuff that falls into this. And right. And, and human nature. It's interesting. This, this coming back. So you have, you've got, Right, if I'm understanding you correctly, these two classes of Jewish people, those that have gone yep. through the exodus and now returned, those that remained, and, and those that went through the, ex, the the exile, sorry, not the exodus, uh, yeah. view like, hey, we went through the crucible, quite literally. Um, history repeats itself, by the way, when we move into the Christian Roman period, and you have persecutions where some Christians stay in it, go through it, and others have retreated outside the empire and then come back. And you yeah. also have these kind of, times of tension of wait, what are we who is the the pure people who have made it through um so wh- how do they begin resolving the tension uh I, I think i had actually mentioned the mass divorce before when went live but one of the more yeah. interesting elements of ezra is you do have a mass public divorce which is the only time this happens in the bible uh and so walk us through why does he why is this commanded and was it a good thing was it correct? Well, first, we have to clarify. Uh, you talk about Ezra and Nehemiah being historical books, and that's true in the sense of, I think, there are things that happen in history. But they mm-hmm. are not included in what we would call the, uh, the former prophets, which correct. is, yes. you know, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd um, uh, Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. These are actually called the writings. And the, mm-hmm. why, the reason I, I point that out is because the, the former prophets, what we call the historical books, have a prophetic voice in them that says, this was right, this was wrong. There is no prophetic voice in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's no prophetic voice. Excuse me. There's no prophetic voice in the writings. And let me explain as I say that, because mm-hmm. Daniel is part of the writings. Yep. There's no narrative voice that says, yes, this was a right action. That was a wrong action. Like you get mm-hmm. with, with the kings, you know. This king did so-and-so, but he left the idols and, and said, you know, left the high places. And so he committed all the evil Jeroboam, son of yeah, yeah, uh, didn't yeah. do like his father David. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, that cold popping up again. Um, when you right. come back to Ezra and Nehemiah and you see what they're doing, that prophetic voice is silent. There is no, there is no voice there saying this was right or this mm-hmm. was wrong. So we have to make sure that we do not look at the Bible and say just because it's in here, it means God approved it. Because if you think that, then go read the last couple of chapters of Judges. Mm-hmm. God yeah. did not approve that. I'll guarantee you. Um, so what I think happens here is you, you have these people who are trying to, they've just came back into the promised land. And all they know is if we do what our forefathers did, we will be taken back into captivity. And we cannot mm-hmm. have that happen. And so what we must do is we must obey the letter of the law. Now, that sounds horrible to us because we've been brought up to, you know, ooh, the Pharisees, we don't, we don't like them, okay? But you have to put yourself in their perspective. Right. If I step outside of this, I can end up back in captivity. If my neighbor steps outside, outside of this, I can end up back in captivity. And none of, this, none of us want this. 
<clears throat> a good modern day example of this might be um okay I'll I'll, I'll just go for it if <clears throat> if I'm a Palestinian and I have seven you know I'm in a neighborhood and if we do this this that or this Israel will come take us hmm. well I don't want that so I'm not going to do those things now that's minor and please don't read any politics into that just helps us get our our head around it it's helpful you're caring not only about your own obedience to the law but it's your neighbors because you know their obedience affects you as well exactly and and vice versa your obedience affects them and so Mm -hmm. and all they have is the law because remember Mm. at this point you you know habakkuk job as you've written on um several other books are all asking what's going on with god why is he not acting the way he used to act? Right. And so they, they come to the conclusion of, well, we don't know how God's acting, but we know that if we obey the law, then perhaps God will do what he used to do. Mm. And so you get this, this tight obedience to the law. And that's where you get into the the divorces. And again, mm-hmm. there's nothing there saying that it was right matter of fact there's no seal of approval saying like thus no saith the lord and this was matter good fact, i i would argue in the final um editing of the old testament coming together there's a reason why in my opinion why um um tamar is and mm. um um you know ruth and all of these Gentile women are shown to be superior to Jael, are shown Mm -hmm. to be superior to these Hebrew hero males in their faithfulness to Yahweh. And I think that they're there to kind of say that, no, what we're seeing in Ezra and Nehemiah is not correct. Yeah, this sort of blood purity the sort of like uh rigid adherence to like you have to be an israelite um does not fit the rest of the narrative of scripture right right david is not purely jewish i mean that's what the book of ruth is trying to point out the 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 irony and and we see this even in other places right the irony of those that should know better don't and those that don't know better do uh and god i think uses that to I think of the New Testament, right? He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yeah, um, absolutely. God's got a good sense of humor, which I love yeah. because uh, I, I like these kind of inversions of what you would expect. Um, yeah, now, that's a good point. Now, you, you, your listeners might be saying, well, okay, then wh- why is this even in here? And are we left with mm. just the, these these multiple voices going all different directions? And you know, I thought the Bible pointed to Jesus. And I would argue... It does that this very specifically um, is left this way with these multiple voices asking all of these questions because Jesus is the answer to every one of these questions. Are we still in captivity? Yes, we are. And I'm going to lead you out of captivity. And so Matthew comes along and rewrites the story of Israel in the life of Jesus. And that's why in Matthew, uh, just like just like with Moses, so when Jesus is born, children are killed. 
then Jesus comes out of Egypt, just as Moses comes out of Egypt. Moses goes through the Dead Sea with Israel. Jesus goes through his baptism with Israel. Moses comes out of, the, out of his baptism, goes into the desert for 40 years. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. In the desert, Israel is tempted. In the desert, Jesus is tempted. Moses, or the Israelites fail in the desert. Jesus doesn't fail because he can defeat the enemy that yeah. Israel cannot defeat. Fast forward to the end, Babylon is Jesus's cross. And he goes into Babylon on Friday. Sunday, he resurrects out of Babylon, defeats the enemy that Israel could not defeat. And therefore, he's reconstituting Israel around himself. And so yeah. I would argue that leaving the questions open and these multivariate voices in the uh, Old Testament is purposeful because Jesus is going to answer every one of those questions. So Job, how, you know, who is this God? What, what, what's going on here? And, you know, God's saying, you have no idea. If, even if I tried to explain it to you, mm -hmm. you wouldn't know. Well, who would understand God coming and dying on a cross? Right, yeah. You know, and I could go on, but I'm Baptist. I might get in the pulpit if I keep going, so... <laughs> But no, it's good because we call this in Matthew, right, the recapitulation uh, of the Old Testament, where Matthew does frame the story of Jesus as doing what Israel didn't do, doing what Israel couldn't do. Um, I, I love even though and, and this is very intentional, listeners, uh, the the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy every time. I don't think that's an accident that that's the book he goes no. to. He's like, look, I can go to the book from that time. Um, and. Christian, would you agree with me? I like to say that there are breadcrumbs left. So we have these multivariant voices, but our multivaliant voices, um, but we have some yeah. breadcrumbs, some interesting points. So I'm thinking of two things, two verses. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. You have Malachi 3 uh, and 3.7. And, and if you're just reading through your Bible, it maybe doesn't jump out. Return to me that I might return to you. And, and you might go, okay, I've heard God say to his people, return to me. But then you realize Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. He's writing to the people of Ezra and Nehemiah who are back in the land, who have rebuilt the temple, who, according to their culture, right? Oh, we've reset that triangle. And God says, return to me. You aren't back. There's something else that has changed. We have The people have left Babylon, but Babylon hasn't left the people, so to speak. Um, and then the other passage that comes to mind is Luke 2. So Jesus, as this kind of fulfillment, the hope, the thing that did not return, uh, I think we see it in Luke 2, because Simeon looks at Jesus uh, when he's being presented at the temple, and Simeon goes, ah, you can now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the glory. The thing that did not return to the second temple has now returned to the temple, no longer in a building, but in a person, right? And so you get this kind of beautiful fulfillment of some of these themes we've been talking about. Um, anyway, I just wanted to throw those two out at you and just see kind of what thoughts bubble service, Malachi 3 and then uh, Luke 2. Well, and as you were saying that, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as you were saying that, you actually kind of, but mess with my head because <clears throat> Malachi, I mean, I know there, there's, there's an 11 there. Um, and so we don't uh, usually make yeah. this connection, 
but it, it, you know, some say that it's a messenger, you know, from mm. messenger, but, uh, so you have a, a, a messenger of God saying, what, you know, return to me and I will return to you. And I'm, I'm wondering on the, the, um, um, etymology even of that word if it's connected to Malek or Malek um, now it looks like it's more uh, um, Malay fullness something for you and I to dig into offline <laughs> yeah that, we've done that but a couple anyways, times it's like oh okay we need to dig into that more alright we'll set that aside but, and just as an aside that's actually how a lot of academic scholarly work happens is we just have conversations like this we go huh wait a second what about and then we get into it i just delivered delivered a paper at ats the evangelical theological mm-hmm. society national meeting and that paper came out of just a conversation that brian myself and one other person was having outside the college of theology so it's not that we we're sitting in our little caves and figuring, you know, we just discuss. But I and apologize. You and, asked. And so much. No, no, no. That's <laughs> we're peeling back the curtain. Uh, you need people around you because even scholars don't. <clears throat> the, the stereotype right is you just lock yourself in a library. Yep. But even then you're dialoguing with those who have written those books. And we do yep. it by dialoguing together. But anyway, uh, the idea of uh, the, the post-exil prophet still saying to the people, you need to return. Um, I, I could imagine an Israelite or a Jewish person going, we're in the land. We've rebuilt the temple. What more do yep. you want? Um, and especially if Ezra and Nehemiah are starting to lock down on we're going to be rigidly obedient to the law. Uh, I think this highlights that we're missing a point here. Return to me that I might absolutely, return to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there might be some people out there that says, okay, but because, you know, there, there is no command to rebuild the temple either. Mm-hmm. Okay, they just do it. Now, That's an interesting point, might, isn't it? There might be somebody out there that says, "Well, wait a second. What about the passage that says, well, you know, you you live in in um, homes. What was the homes of cedar? And look at my house, whatever." But mm. notice, he's not saying go rebuild it. He's saying he's using a comparison. This is what you have on earth that represents me from a previous covenant. And yet, look how mm. you, know, you, you haven't paid attention to it. But look at your own homes. He's not necessarily saying, go fix it. He's just saying, look at the comparison. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely argue that there is a, a longing. There is an a openness that something is not right. And they're looking for it to be right. And they're turning to the law. And I would agree with you that. There are these breadcrumbs from the prophets, from the latter prophets, um, that are pointing out you need to return, you need to come back, you need to return. And it's funny because yeah. John the Baptist kind of picks up on that exact same message. Yes, he does. Yeah, you know, repent, be baptized, and you know the whole thing. We load our our modern idea of baptism into it. But, you know, it, Second Temple period, it's the uh, mikvah, and it's just a ceremonial washing or cleansing to show that you have repented. 
in mm. preparation for the coming of whatever. Um, it turns out with John the Baptist is coming on the Messiah, but you know, in in right. uh, in the uh, Kumon community, it would be a washing for um, going into the ceremonies or whatever. So we have this. I think this is really helpful, uh, Christian, for our listeners to kind of see. We see traces of what is going to come to be in the New Testament time in Ezra and Nehemiah. We start to see this kind of idea of rigid adherence to the law um, that already has been messed with a little bit in the Old Testament. Because I think of Jonah, one of the lessons of Jonah is a worry about you can, uh, and I'm not taking any credit for this, right? But you can see in Jonah, the story of the prodigal son and the older son. Um, and, and this idea of that you can avoid God both by being irreligious and by being religious uh, if you miss the point. And, and we have here in Ezra and Nehemiah, I agree with you, I think kind of missing the point uh, of what was the law supposed to do for them. Um, we're right at the end of the Old Testament timeline, so to speak, right? As you hit Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and something that starts happening I'm going to throw this at you live and see what you think of it. Something that starts happening as you leave the the Old Testament time period, as it were, and move to the Second Temple, is you see a cessation of the writing prophets. So the former, as Christian said, in, in uh, the Jewish order of the Old Testament, you have the former prophets, then the latter prophets. Um, as they go away, you start having a new genre of writing starting to show up, and we call this apocalyptic writing. Daniel is maybe an example of it, uh, at least half yeah, yeah. an example of it. Um, now, Christian, we'll, we'll define apocalypse as a genre here in a moment. Uh, or maybe, actually, maybe we should start there, and then I'll throw my question at uh, something I think maybe is happening with apocalypse. But um, apocalypse in the Bible is going to be the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. What is apocalypse as a genre? As a genre, um the apocalyptic genre usually produces one of two kinds of writings. Either one, you and I think I shared shared this with your audience last time I was here, but one, you have uh, heavenly journeys, catabases, and abases, that is journeys either into the depths or into the heavens or out mm-hmm. into the, the universe. Um, and angels will, will follow and they will explain different things. And then in the other um, type of writing, it is a writing where a group of people go through a very dark time, um, mm. like like everything is 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 about to be destroyed, and then somehow they make it through, and God comes back, and everything is wonderful, and there is a bright bright future afterwards. <clears throat> Interestingly, Revelation combines those two legs of that genre and it's one of the few that i know of that actually strongly combine both of them it it blends both elements of both we have transportation into heaven for scenes and then also talking of the future um how to read the prophets for all their worth um no no that's not the name of the book I shouldn't do this live. I'll look up the name of the book in a second. Um, Peter uh, Peter Gentry, and uh, I'll look up Dr. Gentry, the name of your book in a moment. I apologize. But when he talks about defining uh, apocalypse as a genre, he says it's describing one event in terms of another because that gives the event meaning. 
So that apocalypse does try to get at, at least in our biblical examples, events, but instill them with meaning. So the example he says is, uh, let's say you come up to some people on the side of a street and you there's two people and you ask one person what happens. And they said, well, I just saw a car wreck. And then the second person says, I just saw my world end. They've both described the same event, but one has done so abstractly because they care more about the importance of the event, what it means, what it signifies, rather than the details of the event. Is that a fair characterization of, of Apocalypse as kind of like the meaning behind it or not in your mind? Well, who am I to disagree with Dr. Gentry, first off? <laughs> but... um. <sighs> I think there's more to it than that. It's one, it's just, it's a style of writing. Um, But it comes about during a very broken period where yes, meta narratives are broken. You don't know what's coming. Let's jump for a couple thousand years. Okay. Um, Think about the 1950s in France or the 1960s okay. in America, uh, 1940s and 50s in, in, in Germany, the late 40s or 50s. Uh, same thing in Britain. Uh, if you've read back then or if you're, old, if you're old enough to remember, there was a lot of horrible things happening. Um, the, 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 the rebuild of the facades of the buildings were falling down from World War II. Um, from World War II, they rebuilt it, and those facades were built, were coming down, so everything was kind of just crumbling around them. It felt like society was kind of crumbling around them. Um, a lot of the things that, that they thought that they, you know, their hopes for the future were, were crumbling, especially in the United States in the, in the 1960s. Um, the, 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 meta, the meta narrative of, um, of um, Americana was starting to, to be destroyed um, mm-hmm. because. You know, the black voice was getting stronger and saying, well, wait a second, you're saying this, but look at our experience and and rightly so. It doesn't um, match, yeah. And so you had this just this uproar where where there was nothing to really set your feet on anymore and everything was broken. That understanding is exactly what was going on in the second temple period. And it's funny because there are a lot of um, things that are talked about as postmodern, and and postmodernism actually gets connected with apocalyptic for that very reason. That's why my dissertation actually I took a modified postmodern historiography approach because I was dealing with apocalyptic literature in a historical mm-hmm. time period that represented the exact same thing as when postmodernism came out in the mid to late twentieth century. And so it's it's an attempt to try to find meta narrative and meaning when the old system has crumbled. Yeah, and, is, is and, that kind and, of what you're saying? Yeah, and it, it's this, it's a way of that's part of it, and another part of it is again, how do we tell a story and not get our heads cut off by our, by the people that are above us? You know, um, and yeah. so we we talk in, in in these in this grandiose language. And we talk about it as if it's something that was prophesied from a thousand, two thousand years ago, so that 
somebody can't say, well, you said this last Friday. And so, yeah, there's just, there's a ton of stuff that comes into there and I'm not comfortable um, boiling it down to just one little, it's this or it's that outside of what I shared in the very beginning. Cause that's more of what sure. form does it take? Right. That's form rather than function here. Yeah. Um, and, so th and, that maybe is a, a part of apocalypse, but we shouldn't maybe yeah. collapse all of apocalypse into that idea. Yeah. And, and when you say function, then you have to ask the question, what is, is, is the apocalyptic genre replacing something or is it in addition to something? Mm. And this again, my, my so, this is what my dissertation was in, which was, you know, there are people who are saying that it is, it comes out of the prophetic movement, especially if you go with the 400 years of silence. Uh, there are people who say that it comes out right. of the wisdom movement. People who say that it comes out of the priestly movement, um, which are the, you know, the, the prophetic, the, the priestly, and the wisdom movement are three of the four pillars of the of ancient Hebrew society. Fourth one being you know, the, the the royal pillar, so the, the kings. Right. So the the royal movement. Um, then there are people who say, well, no, it's it's Babylonian in origin. It's Greek in origin. It's Egyptian in origin. It's Sumerian in origin. It's you know whatever else. <clears throat> Excuse me. My argument, my dissertation was when we look at everything that they use for authority in their writing. So when they're borrowing authority to say, you have to believe this, um, I argue that uh, if they move too far from what they borrow, then they're not borrowing that authority from, from their original source because they move too far away from it. It's no longer authoritative. And so when mm -hmm. you compare all of these things, what you find is that the origins of apocalyptic literature is not Babylonian and any kind of Babylonian literature or Egyptian literature or anything else. It's not in the prophetic or the wisdom movement. It's located purely in the milieu of the second temple period of its history of if that's going on there. And so I would say that the apocalyptic genre is a, it's a bubbling up of all that is um, Jewish in the second temple period. It's, it's okay. a so creation like an of a expression new genre of their... because of that. Okay. So an expression of kind of their that moment in culture, that, that yes. period of unmooredness, I guess I could say. Yes. Um, excellent. No, thank you for that. I, I knew this was your background, so I kind of wanted to, I'm like, all right, I got I to ask him some questions. Right. The book, by the way, was How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets by Peter Gentry. Um, How to Read the Biblical Prophets for All Their Worth is another good book by Christopher Wright, but... Uh, confuse that so apologies both are good books go read them circling back though because this this is what i'm interested about apocalypse so uh, of course as evangelicals we're going to say all right what belongs in the bible are these the first testament and the second testament we're going to go with those lists okay <laughs> but I, i'm going to try to keep us employed christian and, and not get us into too much trouble here but <laughs> God speaks, and that doesn't necessarily mean he speaks only in and through scripture. I, I, as I was introduced to the apocalyptic literature in the second temple, one of the things I've seen is that there seems to be an inverse relation, uh, although not a direct connection, as you said, I think is a good point, but an inverse relation between prophetic, the prophetic voice and the apocalyptic voice. As one diminishes, the other does seem to rise. Here's my question, and I'm not saying it's connected as in like 
it, it comes out of it. But in Jesus's ministry, he op- he starts by talking plainly and openly. And as he moves forward, he then switches to parables. Let he who has ears, let him hear. I've heard it argue, or it's been presented to me, that the apocalypse is almost the genre example of that idea of it is now the truth being spoken about in a more veiled form for those who actually want to hear the truth uh, as an attempt to get at it. Is that compatible or fair to what you were saying? Or is that, is that tied to more uh, prophetic source theories of apocalypse? My reaction is a first blush reaction. In all honesty, that's the first time I've heard that. And, my, my reaction is not fair because my first reaction is to push push away from that because it rings as a Gnostic idea to me. But I know that that's... That there's like hidden meaning in the text yeah, or something that, that we have to find. I know that's not fair to those who produce that idea because that's probably not where they're going. So I would have to read mm-hmm. more. In, you know, I'd have to read that more to see where they're coming from it or where they're coming from uh there are times when you know like i said you know those those who have an ear let let them hear um you know you go back to isaiah uh you know hear but don't you know listen or or, however it is Um, speak but do not hear you know uh, yeah the the people won't listen to you there is that concept of those who are deaf will become more deaf Mm -hmm. um but I do think also that Jesus intended for all of that to be laid open immediately or almost immediately after his resurrection. So we see yeah. a lot of that coming out, you know, it, within the first, you know, the, the first sermon, the first few sermons afterwards, it, they're putting all of it together. Whereas in the apocalyptic genre, it's, not put together and it's not the apocalyptic genre um, often is talking about events that just happened as if they happened many years or as if they happened in the future. Right. Um, and so and we and don't so, have uh, anyone, un- unlike Jesus' parables, where he then goes to his disciples and says, this is the meaning. We yeah. don't have that companion of apocalypse right. either. Now, now, as I so, say that, hmm. you do have the war scrolls in Qumran, where um, it is a prophetic, well, here's how the war, the end war is going to happen. But that's more of the, there's a, a dark period of time, dark, you know, and then something great is going to happen just after that. But there's, but there's nothing really hidden in that. It is a very sure. blatant. These, you know, this many people of people of this tribe is going to march here, and people of this tribe is going to march here, and they're going to attack like this, and so it's very, mm. very blatant in that. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I agree with like. So my first reaction when I heard that, I'm like. That seems so neat and nice that I'm not. I'm concerned it's artificial, um, yeah. but I don't trust my own intuition and background on that. So I, I appreciate the kind of insight you have there. Um, so our readers are probably familiar with the two biblical examples of the genre, uh, vis-a-vis half of Daniel, right? Because half of Daniel's yep. narrative, uh, and then John's apocalypse. What are some of the other 
for a second, Temple Scholar, what are some of the other big and important apocalyptic works that are produced in this period? Well, you actually have Ezekiel, a uh, part, little part of, of Ezekiel, yeah. um, Joel, parts of Joel. Um, but then, of course, the, the major one, major, major one, is the book of First Enoch. Yep. Um, and it's actually, taught, it's like four, five, six different books put together. Um, and it repeats kind of the same cycle, the same discussions many, many times. Um, you have Second Enoch that kind of goes with that. Then you have uh, Slavonic or Third Enoch that follows with that. Um, Fourth Ezra, you can throw in there, although Fourth Ezra, Fourth Ezra, Fourth Ezra um, I've also read a paper that said it was basically a peyote trip. So you never know. Um, yeah. And if you read it, you can understand why, because they are actually in, uh, I think, in Iran, someplace in Iran, and they find a plant and they eat it, and then they have visions. Um, Checks out. <laughs> yeah. Um, Snoop Dogg approved. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, those are the main ones. You know, you have uh, yeah. well, tes Testament of Levi and Moses, I think. Um, yeah, the Assumption of Moses. Yeah, and then um, and then if you're going with Heavenly Journeys, um, oh, I can't remember the, the name of it, but when Eve, Adam and Eve get taken up and through their journey and uh, everything else in yes, uh, um, the heavens, and then then uh, I argue, I actually mentioned in my dissertation, I I argue that uh, um, Jub the Book of Jubilees is. There's a chapter that is apocalyptic in it, and it's in mm -hmm. that chapter that it portrays the Book of Jubilees being written. So I argue mm -hmm. that the Book of Jubilees is actually has ties to apocalyptic literature as well. But if you want to say, oh, if you want to really read apocalyptic literature, I want to go to Jubilees. I would go to First Enoch. Be First Enoch. Enoch is kind of the yeah. the. Um, creme de la creme of apocalyptic literature in the second temple period. Yeah. And there are translations available online. Uh, Absolutely. If you just search for first Enoch, you can find it fairly easily. Um, how important is understanding a book like first Enoch for your average Christian that says, I want to, I don't want to do the uh, left behind an American flying the antichrist airplane interpretation of revelation. I want to try to dig in and go, uh, only 90s kids, I guess, will get the uh, left behind joke. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, the uh, I, I want to dig in and understand, right, what did John actually mean in his book? What did Daniel actually mean in his book? How important is something like a first Enoch or in any of the books you mentioned? How important is are those to understand what the biblical writers are doing? It depends on what you're arriving at. Um We have to back up to talk about hermeneutics and, and approaches to reading Revelation in general. Sure. Be because yeah. if you're reading Revelation to try to pinpoint, um, you know, wh when is this going to happen? And, and is, is Russia's move into the Ukraine this part? Um, you know, 
be trying to play pin the tail on, on the Antichrist, this isn't going to help. Um, there's actually a book called Pin the Tail on the Antichrist and other very non-Christian games Christians like to play. And it was a wonderful oh, book. I it like came that. out in the mid-1990s. <laughs> if you haven't read it, read it. It's wonderful. But um, uh, It is going on my list. But um, so, it, you know, if, if you're looking at it for that sense, reading the the uh, uh, Second Temple apocalyptic literature is not going to help. But if you want to find out yeah. what is the author doing with this kind of stuff, what what genre is he working in, and why is he working in this genre? What what does this genre do? Then it will help. Go pick it up, read mm-hmm. it. There are some commentaries, some good commentaries uh, that you can pick up with them and, and, and read. Unfortunately, they are very expensive. <laughs> so. Um, but you know you, you can pick it up, you can read it. There are several books that, that will help you kind of make sense of it. But also remember that those who wrote the book of Revelation were guided by the Holy Spirit. Those who wrote uh, First Enoch, at least in my understanding, were not. Now there is one or two Eastern churches, I believe, that does accept First Enoch as canon. But most of us don't. But it's not going to be the mainline Orthodox Church, right. even. It's going to be right. subsets of those. Yeah. Okay. No, so, that's helpful because right, I could see your listener going like, "Oh, dude, I just like expand my reading list. Um, am I allowed to read any of these books? I don't know. Yeah. They might kick me out of my church." Um, yeah. I, so that's I, helpful. Absolutely, absolutely, read them, but read them in the same way that you would pick up and read a fiction book written by an author that also writes your favorite history. So this way you can understand how yeah. he writes. Then when you go to, but when you're reading history versus reading his fiction book, you know that you're reading two different things. That's really good. I really like that. Well, fantastic. Um, Christian, I've already taken you uh, kind of long. Do you have time for two quick questions? Sure. Before uh, we sign off for tonight. Awesome. So we've got two questions, both from Jacob. Um, First, circling back a little bit, uh, about 40 minutes ago, we were talking about polytheism, uh, henotheism, which is the worship of one god while uh, accepting that other gods exist um, in the Old Testament. The the question says, um, so how do you read through, like, especially Samuel, there seems to be an acknowledgement of other Elohim. Um, Where does this start to get clarified? Like, can we point to some specific points to go, no, here's where Israel clearly starts planting flags and going, there's only one tr- one God in the sense that you and I would use it in a modern sense. I would say you start to get that in the prophets. Now, the prophets, of course, expand a lot, you know, a long time, but... Um, oh. Minor prophets, well, especially. Uh, well, yes. Um, oh, crud. Who declares the end from the beginning, right? That seems to be yeah. God's own criteria for what is a God. All of a sudden, my brain just went blank. Minor prophet that goes through like nine different nations right around that area and condemns them all and leaves Edom for the last. Oh. oh, is that Amos, right? Circling in uh, to the last one. 
Well, Ames uh, says circling. I don't know if it's the one that leaves Edom, though, to the last. But it, I'm also having there, a brain fart. <laughs> in there, you see that the, the expansion of uh, Yahweh not just being a god of Israel, but bigger. You even see it somewhat mm-hmm. with, um, you know, the end of First and Second Kings, I think, or the end of Second Kings, I think, where God's now controlling Babylon. Yes. Yeah. Right. And you've got the psalm that says that saying of Egypt, right? This one was born here. Um, yeah. there, there is a sort of expansive sense. Um, Jacob, to your point, I, I think there's a couple of interesting things. The Ten Commandments, uh, you shall have no other gods before me as a meaningless commandment if there's not something else that could fit in that category, at, at least conceptually, right? Um, yeah. So I, I think right there you have this kind of little like, uh, there's some other things out there, but We've talked uh, in several podcast episodes, Christian, uh, about the creation story, and um, I see I see Genesis one. Tim does not, but I see Genesis one as a disenfranchisement of other spiritual beings to go look. Whether they are out there or not, you're not made in their image. You're made in my image. Uh, oh. They are created as are you, uh, and so there's no allegiance. Whatever category used to talk about them that's fine it's just me as the creator god oh yeah absolutely um well that whole thing when you get the was it it's the the pl um no 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 the uh, fifth pl where the spirit hovers over the water mm-hmm. okay yep and the idea there the, the water is the deep to home um there's a lot of connection there to chaos gods the concept of of a yes. chaos monster, a chaos god, and the idea that yep. that the spirit is hovering over it is the idea that God is in control of chaos, which is which is antithetical to almost all other creation stories. Every other where creation chaos story is in control, and chaos is is creating, not creating the not creating the, the, the world, but um, God's chaos is in war with other gods. Mm-hmm. And yeah, chaos cop. We to, actually used that term a couple episodes ago. Yeah, and and and, and they're able to beat it back. Here, there mm-hmm. is no chaos. God is in control. His spirit hovers yeah. over the deep. Yeah. No. So, Jacob, to your point, uh, the idea is always there. Part of the issue we wrestle with is a terminology gap between how yeah. we talk of God and angelic realm. Is a distinction that does not exist until you get later into the text. Um, so that's part of the issue. And then part of it is cultural as well. And their understanding of what the spiritual realm is and how it and engages. Do we there. know Jacob's uh, last name? Yes, but because it's recorded online, I yeah, try to, uh, to dox you know, someone. The only reason I asked that is because I, I want to make sure it's not one of our uh, colleagues that are messing with us. No, 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 no. This is a, a longtime <laughs> listener friend of the podcast, Jacob. Great. So, Wonderful. no, uh, I, I would Jacob. have uh, pointed out. <laughs> yeah, great question. And the second one that comes in, um, just for a book suggestion, because this is good Temples for Dummies. Christian, that's a book we need to write. Uh, but no, Ooh, uh, yeah. if we're going to point someone like, what's a quick way to go, like, what do we mean when we say first temple, second temple? Um, is there a go-to dictionary, Bible dictionary that you like, or a reference work that would be helpful for the common reader out well, there? I shared this before. I think the go-to dictionary for Second Temple Judaism is uh, the Urban's Dictionary of Early Judaism, but it's about this mm-hmm. thick and it's very expensive. 
um, a classic. This is well, this is Persian period history and historiography by Williamson. That's probably not as good, but uh, I don't know if you can, if you can see that. But it's a, an introduction to Second yep. Temple Judaism by Raby, G R A B B E, Lester L. Graby. Um, it's a thin book. It's a very good book that's just kind of an introduction to what's going on in the time. Raby, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe he is either a atheist or agnostic Jew, um, or Jewish atheist or Jewish okay. agnostic. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think that's his background. And I'd share that with you to share that what, you know, if, if you're picking these up and reading it, don't, don't expect just an evangelical point of view. Uh, these are points of views from all over the place. Um, sure. And there's value so, in that if you're trying to get a broader understanding. Yeah. I may have shared this with you before as well, but it's uh, um, Vanicam's Introduction to Early Judaism. This is the second edition. He has a third edition out now, but it's pretty good. If you want to dig deeper, a little bit deeper, and I referenced this before, this is Judaism, the first phase by Blankensop. Mm -hmm. It's Joseph Blankensop, B-L-E-N-K-I-N-S-O-P-P. And if you like history, there's a nice thick book, um, From Cyrus to Alexander by Pierre Briant. Um, this is a beautiful, massive book. It comes out of the, the French Leger Doree um, method of history, which is the, 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 the long duration. Um, um, great book. Pick it up and read it if you really like history. One thing I want to leave your readers off with. Oops, I missed that. One thing that I, I want to leave your readers with or your listeners with, as you start to study Second Temple Judaism, um, you might get into uh, Vaki, uh, Wellhausen, some of those. Uh, there, unfortunately, um, a lot of anti-Semitism came out of their writings because these were turn of the last century German writers, German theologians, and they saw in the de development of Judaism, the development of the law, they said that the law came out and it killed this, this living thing, which was the Hebrew, Hebrew religion, the prophets. And they used that to, um, well... I shouldn't say they use it to to solidify or to um, um, allow their anti-Semitism. I think that's going too far. But I, I do think that you can say that you can see a trajectory started long before them. Sure. But they were part of it. So please be careful when you read through any of the older German writing on, writings on this stuff. Uh, yes, there was a big break. Yes, I do think that there was a, a, a grabbing onto the law, uh, but it was because it was a life vest for them. So um, 
ever since World War II, in the New Testament, there's been, or New Testament studies, there's been a big concern about making sure that we are historically accurate, that no, it's not the Jews that killed Jesus. It was every one of us who killed him through our sins and the Romans who put him on the cross. Um, yes, the Jews led him there. We are all guilty. Old Testament studies, let's be honest with the way it came about. Yes, the Jews um, in, in the early Second Temple did grab onto the law, but it was as a life vest. It wasn't to choke out mm -hmm. the life of, of the it, earlier It's a prophets. very human reaction that I think makes sense yes. when you put it in context. Um, yes. And I've, I've said on the podcast before, I look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day and I go, he fights with them the most because they're the closest in so many ways. Yep. To getting I, it, I've almost argued there. That, I've actually argued that Jesus was a Pharisee. Uh, he, they seem to think he's one. They call him rabbi. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good warning uh, and just a good reminder because that can shock you if you're not like prepared for it. You start reading uh, yeah. and you go, "Oh my goodness, they are saying some things that I really find objectionable yeah. or, or aren't expecting." So, thank you for that warning out there, um, listeners. Those are really good references uh, if you're looking to go deep. If uh, I'll take the shallower route. Uh, if you're just looking for like a quick introduction, a Bible dictionary will do you well. Uh, Lexham put out one in 2016. Oh. That's pretty good. Lauren McCune wrote the Second Temple article. Um, it's fairly fairly well put together if you could get your hands on it. Um, there are also some really good books about ancient Near Eastern history and the region. There's lots of material out there, and we'd highly encourage you, go and spend your time. Context helps us understand the word of God because God speaks through time and speaks through culture and speaks through context. And so the more yep. we can understand that, I think the better we are going to be as readers of the Bible and hopefully, therefore, doers and not just hearers only. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for coming on and letting me keep you a long time. I, Brother, I just love talking with you. Uh, and Absolutely. I enjoy <laughs> uh, it. We're probably going to stay on this call for a while after we're done recording, but um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome. I, I enjoy this. Well, listeners, uh, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Uh, next week, Dr. Tim will be back with us, and we have another guest interview. We're going to be bringing in Dr. Russ Meek to talk about his work in the book of Ecclesiastes and Genesis. It's going to Ooh. be a really great interview, so we'd... Ah, we'd invite you to join us then. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hope you have a fun time with your family. As always, stay cool and stay old. Have a great night, everyone, and take care. Bye.